Hey friend, this podcast is brought to you by The Family Thrive, an expert-led, science-backed online community for parents who want to dig deeper and do better. Join us at thefamilythrive.com. The number one most important thing is it's all okay. You can't do anything. Just survive. That is the key to newborns. It's just surviving. So newborns don't have circadian rhythm. So we don't know night is night and day is day. And it doesn't come about until about three to four months. It's just survival. And there's nothing wrong with whatever you got to do to get these kids to sleep. Okay. If you could only focus on one health behavior and had to let all the others slide, what would it be for you? Well, here at The Family Thrive, it's sleep without a doubt. If you're not well-rested, then you really don't have the energy, attention, or motivation to do much of anything else. So we take sleep pretty seriously, which is why we couldn't wait to have on this week's guest, Kate Simon, a sleep scientist and a mom who studies how sleep affects kids of all ages. She's a postdoctoral fellow at the University of California, Irvine, where I got my public health PhD, go anteaters. And she's worked at Children's Hospital of Orange County, where our son Max was treated for his brain tumor for 10 years. So we've got these cool connections that we talked about at the beginning. Anyway, in this episode, we get all the latest science and wisdom on optimal sleep, not only for kids, but for adults as well. So if you care about the health benefits of good sleep as much as we do, then you're going to love this episode. So get a cozy blanket and some chamomile tea and settle in for a conversation that will change the way you think about sleep. I wanted to know about your experience with Matthew Walker, who I've heard on a number of podcasts. And he's like, mm-hmm. in my mind, he's like the sleep expert. Justin's a huge fan, massive yeah. fan. Yeah. So did you know that you wanted to study sleep and then, or was it that experience that got you into st- studying sleep? Yeah, it's a really great question. So I was an undergrad at UC Berkeley and had devoted myself to becoming a social worker And then towards the end of my senior year, I said, well, you know, maybe this isn't exactly what I want to do. I end up taking a science of sleep class from Matt um, and figured out, nope, this is this is what I want to do. I want to be a sleep researcher. So from there, um, I asked to join his lab and got the opportunity to. He had just moved to Berkeley from, I think, from Harvard. Before that, I'm not positive. Um, Joined his lab as a research assistant and undergrad. So, you know, the people who do all kind of the, yeah. the scut work, right? That's right. Um, that's right. And then joined um, Dr. Allison Harvey. She's also a fantastic sleep researcher at UC Berkeley. She studies adolescence and sleep and insomnia so from the clinical domain. And so I joined both sleep labs. Oh, yeah. She clearly needs to get on to some more podcasts. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you can listen to her as well. Yeah, so. exactly. Yeah. So uh, can I just ask real quick, was there, yeah. when you took that class, was there an aha moment or was it a slow thing over that class where you're like, sleep, man, this is, this is cool. You know, I don't, I mean, it was probably like 16 years ago. Oh, sure, sure. It's yeah, been yeah, a yeah. while, but I knew I always loved working with kids, which is why I'd want to be like a social worker or a teacher. Um, and the sleep it, everything just kind of connected together for me in that moment in that class. And so um, quickly decided I was going to change course and pursue becoming a sleep and memory and development researcher. Wow, oh, what a powerful moment when everything just sort of like clicks and comes together for you. I feel like it's part of the magic of college <laughs> is is exploring different things and, and having yeah. access to things that you wouldn't normally 
you know, just think of. Absolutely. I think that is the most important thing is, is also I tell this story because I truly devoted everything to being a social worker up to that point. And then I switched in the last semester. And so I like to tell the undergrads that I work with that there's never a time you can't change course if you don't want to. Uh, I yeah. think that is wonderful. It's a beautiful mm-hmm. message. My mm-hmm. my mother went back and got a PhD when I was in high school and then totally changed her career as well. And it and it helped me see wow. that not everything is just about a linear, you know, kind of path forward and finish in a you know certain amount of time and find what you want to yeah. do that um there the journey of life can take us into mm-hmm. into new and wonderful directions so yeah. that's amazing does your interest in social work or your background really studying that much in social work um inform um your your uh work on sleep or research or anything in in any way cuz that's like more like kind of society like systems you know they're, mm-hmm. you're you're studying like uh, when when you're going into social work, you're learning, you know, you're learning a lot about how we've constructed our our society, about inequity, about all uh, all sorts mm-hmm. of different things. And then you go yeah, into absolutely. this scientific research, and it's a bit different. But do you see connections? I mean, I do. I think that um, it also helped me decide to add on a clinical PhD. So I started oh. a program in a cognitive neuroscience PhD and added clinical, um, so that. I could really see the person as the whole. So at research, we're really at this kind of micro level at times. So the research I do is very Mm -hmm. basic. How are these cognitive processes unfolding? What are the kind of small roles? And then I also studied at the clinical level so I could see, well, how does this actually translate to the person? And and kind of that navigation between those two spheres is, is what I love the most. And I think what helped my, what my background helped me support. Totally makes sense. So the next step for you was to go to the University of Arizona. Mm -hmm. And so we both have ties there. I was born in Tucson. And although I think only a few people in my dad's family went to the U of A, the entire family. (laughs) You think they all went. Yeah. Yeah. Just living in Tucson. (laughs) It's like that's. The, you know, U of A football, U of A basketball, yeah, go baseball, soft, no, like yeah. every single sport, like volleyball, it doesn't matter. <laughs> um, yeah. So tell us about your time in Tucson or, or at the U of A. How did this shape what you're doing today? Yeah. So I um, had a fantastic time. I love Tucson. I recommend it to everybody um, similar to your family. So I went to graduate school there from a cognitive neuroscience PhD is where I started. Um, And I worked with doctors Lynn Nadell, Dr. Rebecca Gomez, and Dr. Dick Bootson. So um, I I went in knowing I wanted to study sleep, memory, and kids. I've been pretty true to that since. And so Dr. Bootson was a sleep guru. He's since passed away, but um, really helped kind of initiate some of the initial sleep treatments. Um, So very big in the clinical world. Um, Dr. Lynn Nadell is a huge figure in terms of uh, hippocampal dependent memory. And uh, Dr. Gomez studies development. And so I got to have all three as my mentors. I was incredibly lucky and worked with all three to really try and hone my interests and hone my understanding of these three very disparate areas, but to intersect them together and study that intersection. So you knew going in, it was sleep, memory, kids. What mm-hmm. Did this come f- through your work as an undergraduate researcher with Matthew Walker or was there some other impetus for you to uh, be interested in in these three things? I think Matt's class, I was like, this is what I want to study. And so he did sleep and memory in adults. And so I got that Mm, memory and sleep component. Um, Dr. Harvey did adolescence. 
And then I actually had joined a third lab in undergrad, Dr. Joseph Campos, who is a huge infant development researcher. And so kind of started getting that experience in those labs. And that is what I took with me to graduate school. Okay. And then the next step was a clinical internship at Chalk Hospital. Mm-hmm. And of course, we are very close with Chalk Hospital. Our son. Well, that's when we there became like interested in sleep. I. I would say. What was that? That's when we became interested in sleep. Oh, yeah. Yeah, right. And and uh, I think really had no awareness other than when we had babies and we're like, oh, my God, we need sleep. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. Forget about this kid. What about us? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but we became very inter- interested in sleep for our entire family's health and well-being um, mm-hmm. once we started learning about it, having a hospitalized kid. Oh, well, another thing, and this is not, mm-hmm. of course, unique to chalk at all, but just being surprised. So our son was diagnosed with a brain tumor in 2011, and we were tr- treated at Chalk Hospital. He was in uh, he was inpatient for uh, almost, almost a weeks. month, and we mm. were just surprised at how little anyone seemed to care about sleep. It was like <laughs> lights and beeping, and just like you know, let's do rounds at when you know four in the morning, five, and yeah. it. And at the time, it was just like, can we get some sleep? But then when we started to do research about how important sleep was for healing, and it was like, oh, man, how does our – why do our hospitals – and I think it's gotten better from what what, what I've heard. But how do our hospitals Mm -hmm. care so little about sleep? Yeah. Well, I mean, you think about it, and you have clclinicians are like broken into the system – Right. No There's sleep. a socialization you know, like, <laughs> with yeah. doctors ar- around sleep being for the week, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I'd like to think that that message is changing a lot, both for mm-hmm. residents, you know, and having cut hours at certain points, but also kind of older um, generations of doctors. But in addition, um, Chalk and other, I think, hospitals around the country have really changed in the last 10 years and really recognized how critical sleep is to the healing process. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me about your clinical internship? I'm interested to know what that looked like at, at Chalk. Yeah, I worked at Chalk for two years. So one is a clinical internship. And then I did um, what's called a clinical fellowship, which is similar to a residency yeah. there after um, as a first year postdoc. Uh, I loved it. They are a fantastic hospital. Um, yeah. So what I did is I have brought all my child psychology experience and really learned how to work with children like your son who had health issues either acute or chronic. And so I assessed them for mental health issues, either as a result of or causing Mm -hmm. or just all intersecting around disease and health. So worked a lot with children with diabetes, um, cystic fibrosis, you know, learned how to assess children, how to give them resources and how to provide, you know, the understanding of these are diseases that may or may not be long term. And how do we work to help you have strong mental health through your treatments? through kind of the ups and downs of your diseases. And how did, um, how did your um, colleagues, you know, kind of like on the care team receive this, this work? How did it, did it? I mean, cause to me, it seems like a, a wonderful progression. I know a lot of nurses who are running sleep uh, studies on sleep and looking to change the dynamics and change the education. So I think that there has been a wave of change. What, what was that like for you on the child's care team and, and also with the parents um, experiencing your, your work and interventions? Yeah. So I worked on a huge team from the psychology department since I was a trainee. So I had lots of, um, you know, psychologists overseeing me and then, you know, continued on after I graduated 
Um, and I think at least at chalk, and I like to think at most hospitals, psychology is really respected and appreciated field because we can offer something that the medical doctors can't. Mm, We can offer that mind body connection. We can offer different resources, coping mechanisms that potentially the doctors haven't been trained in because they have to focus on, on how to keep kids healthy. Right. So I think that it's been, it was a wonderful uh, interaction and work with them. Awesome. It's fantastic. I I love hearing of this integration. I Mm -hmm. think, you know, especially the where we've learned just as parents of, of the power and importance of, of, of sleep and support for mental health, physical health and, and beyond. It's really, really cool to hear of this. Um, I think change really change in healthcare. I agree. I think it's, especially right now, it's really being focused on just wonderful. And so to bring us up to the present day, you Mm -hmm. are now a postdoc fellow at UC Irvine. I got Mm -hmm. a PhD there, so yet another connection. (laughs) Um, Very parallel in life. Yeah. So tell us about your work now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I work with Dr. Sarah Bednick. She is fantastic. Um, She is actually studying how sleep-dependent memory processes change over the menstrual cycle for women, which is um, women in general, we do not have enough research on us, um, really understanding kind of the nuances of how our bodies are different, um, or maybe the same, but that research is lacking. And so there's four phases in a menstrual cycle for women in which hormones change dramatically between estrogen and progesterone. And at each one, we have differences in sleep. And so the idea is, well, then is our sleep-dependent memory processes changing. Um, Mm. Long term, women are more at risk for dementia related diseases like Alzheimer's. And so we're looking to see if changes in sleep dependent memory around hormones might be a risk factor or a protective factor for later dementia related disorders. Oh, so Mm -hmm. interesting. Yeah. So with this research, I'm learning the endocrinology and a whole bunch of other things (laughs) that I'm then going to bring down to kids and look at puberty. Uh, I was going to, yeah, that's that's exactly what I was going to ask. So yeah, are you looking at like adolescence or, yeah, okay. Awesome. All right. So we might revisit all this stuff as we now dig into the sleep science. And so this is what we really want to know. At the Family Thrive, we're, we're, we're about bringing expert science and translating it for parents so we can, as, as parents, use this stuff in our home, in our, real lives. So before we get into any of the nitty gritty around, you know, sleep training or whatever else, let's start at the very beginning. Why do animals even need sleep? Like this seems if, you know, you just think about it evolutionarily, wouldn't it be better if we were just on 24 hours a day Mm. so we could eat and, and, you know, procreate. So (laughs) (laughs) I mean, evolutionarily, right? It's just like, that's what, you know, that's, that's what our, we do spend a lot of time in in, in sleep, right? So so why do animals even need sleep? I I mean, I think it's still the hundred million dollar question, frankly, I think we don't necessarily truly know the answer. And there's a lot of different reasons why, right? You go from an evolutionary perspective, you can say, well, humans and many animals can't see at night. We're pretty vulnerable to predators. So maybe we should go hide ourselves in a cave and keep ourselves safe if we know. And that's a perfect opportunity to sleep. I mean, that's one evolutionary perspective. Mm. Uh, For me, I think that sleep is critical to help our restorative function, right? During the day, our body incurs so much damage or so much wear and tear is maybe a better way to think about it, that we need 
the night to really restore those same functions and kind of bring us back to this baseline where we're ready to go the next day and ready to engage and our immune function is ready and, you know, at its peak to protect us from germs, things like that. Mm, So it's restorative. Like we should really think about like the fundamental reason we need sleep is for this restorative. Yeah. Is there such thing as too much having too much sleep? It depends on on what is also accompanying it. So usually mm-hmm. when we see people who are having too much sleep, a lot of times it's also accompanying with disease. So, you know, there's kind of this U-shaped function, right? Too little sleep is bad associated with disease, higher mortality. Too much sleep is also bad associated with disease and higher mortality. And so there's kind of this middle ground of, of, of kind of optimal amount of sleep for you, depending on what age you are. So that's, that's kind of the main reason. I will say, in addition, we know that sleep is critical for our cognitive processes and helps support our memory overnight, helps support us to have better attention, better emotion regulation. So there's a lot of reasons for why we sleep. Yeah, and I like to think about that those cognitive reasons as related mm-hmm. to being restorative. So mm-hmm. I, I, and yes. we can, we can get into that um, in a, in a little bit, but while, while we're talking about the purpose of sleep, mm-hmm. why do babies need so much sleep? <laughs> like they come out of the wood, yeah. they're like sleeping all the time and then it gets less and less and less <laughs> as they get older. Yeah. And so right. what's going on early on? Well, I'll, I'll flip it to you and I'll say, what is going on early on in infancy? What is the baby's number one kind of function or purpose in life, it's to grow and it's to develop, right? And so to develop in a healthy way, we need sleep to help us get to that optimal place. So during sleep, we know that there's growth hormone secretion. So it's helping them grow through sleeping. We know that they're constantly taking in the knowledge of the world around them. Um, I used to study infant sleep um, at the U of A, as we talked about. And so we know that infants are these amazing mini statisticians, and that's how they acquire language. They're constantly picking up on those statistics of language. And my work showed that um, over just a short nap, infants are able to retain statistical properties of language, Mm. where without that short nap, they're not able to. So we know sleep is doing these important functions of helping stabilize this new knowledge at tiny little intervals Mm. moving forward. So they have, I have a question okay, about that. Yes. Though. Do, yeah. <laughs> does it matter if that nap is uh, in a stationary location or in a car seat or in a stroller? There's there. I remember there being a lot of debate around this, you know, the quality of it okay. uh, according to location or, or movement. I think that's a really good question. I think the jury's out on terms of, you know, I only studied baby sleeping in a, in a crib. Mm-hmm, so I can't, mm-hmm. I can't generalize my science, yeah. but I will say sleep is sleep. As long as you're doing it in a healthy and safe way, you know, those kind of alone on your back, like just aware of SIDS risks and things like that. But, um, you know, if they're sleeping on you and you're safe and upright mm-hmm. and awake, that sleep's probably the same as sleeping in a crib. Yeah. So right. you're, right. so just to be clear, you're saying, um, that as far as we know, sleep in a stroller, like if I'm walking the baby down the street mm-hmm. and it's sleeping in the stroller, just as good as if it's, alone quiet in its crib i mean i think the question actually i'll flip back to you is we know that when we sleep we have certain brain rhythms and certain stages of sleep and the question is are the infants able to get the right amount of stages during the Mm -hmm. stroller nap versus at home 
I don't think we've ever actually studied that question. Oh, I it's got to be. We need. We need an R O one. We need the <laughs> NIH to get on this. <laughs> well, I, and I'm and I'm going to just assume or ex- and sort of like extrapolate from from your uh, observations that um, with all of the uh, moms around the world over time who uh, for whom baby wearing is the norm and mm-hmm. is the practice until, yep. you know, the child is, is, is fairly well grown, you know, at age three, you know, from infancy. And, um, it seems like those babies grow pretty well. Yeah. So, I'm not too worried. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. So I, I just, uh, a f- just a, a few more questions to lay the groundwork. Why do sure. babies need so many naps? Why can't they get it all in just one big chunk? Yeah, it's a good question. Babies sleep in these kind of polyphasic sleep bouts, right? Many throughout the day, poly, um, rather than one consolidated nighttime chunk. And I think that the true answer is because they are taking in so much information, they're constantly having all these needs. They're constantly having caloric needs too. They need Mm. to be eating around the Mm. clock as well. Eating takes a lot of energy, takes a lot of time, right? Um, You guys had your son, you know, many years ago, I'm sure you remember, sometimes they fall asleep eating is so exhausting to eat, Mm -hmm. right? So you know, it takes a lot of energy. And so they need to sleep to kind of regain their energy to be aware and be present and take in what's around them in the world to eat enough to grow. Awesome. So is sleep serving different developmental or cognitive developmental purposes at different ages? Or is it basically the same thing of, you know, consolidating memory and uh, some of the other functions that you've already mentioned? So is it the same thing, but it's just a lot more uh, you know, when we're babies, or are there different things going on at different ages? I think there's probably to some degree different things going on based on where we are in our lives and our cognitive development. But in general, I think most people assume sleep is doing similar things across because we don't see massive changes in the brain waves while people are sleeping. I will add, though, you know, infants when they first are born their EEG is much less mature than you see in adults. And it's through that early brain maturation when we start to see adult-like rhythms around six months. So sleep is helping to support um, brain maturation in that very early lifespan. And then, but also growth, immune functioning, you know, energy needs, that sort of thing. I'm curious um, about um, infant sleep cycles. Do they have as much REM sleep as uh, children and adults? Yeah, really good question. I love infant sleep, so I could talk about this all day. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Just in case, uh, uh, for any listeners, could you just real briefly explain REM sleep? I would be happy to. So when we go to sleep, we actually have different stages. So one kind of umbrella stage is called non-rapid eye movement sleep. Um, so non-REM, and the other is called rapid eye movement sleep, REM. We associate REM with dreaming typically, mm-hmm. um, although we do know that you can dream in non-REM. But in REM, during sleep, especially when we're having those dreams, certain brain areas are turned on versus off. And so that's why we have these very emotional, very vivid dreams without any kind of higher cognitive control saying, hmm, this is not a logical dream. So that's mm-hmm. what's going on during REM. We also have muscle atonia. So our bodies essentially are kind of turned off. So we can't act out our dreams during REM. It's very much a safety mechanism our bodies have figured out. Otherwise, you know, who knows what we would be doing. I'd probably be cooking in the kitchen a lot. (laughs) Um, uh, But then so during non-REM, typically what ends up happening is we have 
three different stages. One, non-REM one, which is really light sleep. Two, where you can kind of really consider yourself in sleep. And we start to see the process of non-REM two supporting sleep-dependent memory. So we know that the more you have it and certain features within sleep, the more of those features you have, you have better memory. And then stage three, which is our deep sleep, flow wave sleep. And that's really considered the restorative sleep as well, and also very linked to memory. So in terms of REM and non-REM, in adults, we have 90-minute cycles. So we go through all of these stages in 90 minutes, and then we'll kind of come up for a little quick second and wake up and then go back down into these 90-minute cycles. But in infancy, we actually have 50-minute cycles where we go through them. And at birth, you typically are born where you're having 50% REM and 50% non-REM sleep, Mm. which dwindles down dramatically in that first year of life. Um, so at the end, we, I think we typically have about 20 to 30% of wow. REM sleep alone as adults. Interesting. Across a full night. Mm-hmm. Across yeah, a full night. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a lot of theories on what's REM's doing. It's, we know it's like, um, essentially the brain, um, all the sensory areas of the brain are really turned on during REM, right? Mm-hmm. You have these vivid dreams, very emotional. So one way some people think about it is it's the scrimmage to the game. It's setting all your sensory areas up and ready so that when you acquire the information during wake, you're ready to, uh, you know, retain it and know what's going on. Really cool. Oh, it's so so cool. cool. Yeah. Yeah. I'm curious about it. We, we both um, got aura rings Mm -hmm. uh, a few years ago to, to explore our own sleep. And, you know, I don't know how, um, how accurate, you know, it really is, but what, what, we found is that i mean he he gets like really phenomenal deep sleep and usually not as much rem sleep and i am the opposite i tend to get like super amounts of rem sleep and not mm. as much deep sleep mm-hmm. although oh, oh so okay, could 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 you tell us do you have an opinion on these sleep wearables yeah yeah good question yeah i mean i will say they're not eeg so we're not you know checked into your brain what's exactly happening but aura rings are phenomenal they're probably the best wearable right now although oh. not, i don't know if i'm allowed to say that but um, yeah, i think so I think <laughs> in That's general okay wearables <laughs> are great we use them in our research as well so um we have some great findings just because they're tracking your heart rate variability right mm, and yeah, really giving yeah. insight into that mm-hmm. yeah yeah oh no i i've i learned a ton at uh, in maybe the first six months or so wearing an aura ring and then after that, it was more just confirmation of like, yep, I know I had two drinks of alcohol last night. And sure enough, that's exactly what happens. Mm-hmm. I have to really terrible sleep. Um, so uh, I have over the years, uh, I, I took a class uh, that did a lot of sleep science at, at UC Irvine. Uh, it wasn't a part of my dissertation, so I didn't d- do any deep dives. Uh, but then, of course, reading Matthew Walker's book and listening to a bunch of podcasts and talking with other experts, I've come to think about like the three important things that I want to think about as a parent uh, around sleep is sleep duration. Like I, I, you know, I want to make sure my kids get enough sleep, uh, you know, in terms of amount, but then also high quality sleep. And so I've seen Mm -hmm. studies where, you know, having, um, enough light on in the room can disrupt Mm -hmm. quality of sleep. So I'm thinking not just about duration, but I'm thinking about quality as well. And as you said, Mm -hmm. so, you know, quiet, dark, cool enough. So the temperature matters. Um, And then the third one, which I've seen epidemiology on, but I 
don't know what you think about uh, this uh, timing. So, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. if like we should be getting sleep at, at night and that if we uh, dramatically shift when we're getting those eight hours, that can make a difference. So uh, duration, quality and timing. What do you think about this? Am, am I in the ballpark? Yeah, you're spot on. <laughs> I agree with all three. I saw your your pre notes about it. And I was like, yep, you know it. Um, per the third one, at least, we have a circadian rhythm where our body has different phases where things are up and things are down. And we know that there's this optimal time for us to sleep. And I think understanding what that optimal time is for our bodies and being able to react to those cues and go to bed when we need to rather than stay awake, you know, watch TV, watch Netflix, do things. I think that's really key as well for kids is making sure we catch them in that window they need to go to sleep. So could you real quick, I think I Mm -hmm. left off this key term that I love to talk about uh, (laughs) with parents, which is circadian rhythm. So could Mm -hmm. you really could 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 you real briefly talk about that? Sure. Circadian rhythm is essentially our bodies respond in certain rhythms throughout the day, across the day. And so what it just essentially means is we have this internal clock mechanism that's saying, okay, now it's time to wake up. I want my cortisol up. I want to get up and go during the morning. And then at night, we have our melatonin come on. Melatonin is a hormone that tells our body it's a timing mechanism. Okay, it's time to go to sleep. Let's get ready. Let's kind of calm ourselves and get ready for bed. And then we go to bed. So people in general, you can kind of think of them as owls and larks. So we have a preference. And we think this preference of whether we want to stay up late or go to bed early um, is related to our circadian rhythm. But honestly, that research just still needs to be done. If the preference matches our circadian rhythm, it's not 100%. It's just, it's an idea. It's a theory right now. Okay, real. Okay, so real, real quick. <laughs> yeah. I, I have a little bit of a bone to pick about this Uh-oh. owl and lark. Oh, I've, yeah. I've seen a couple and I, oh, yeah. I don't I know, know how uh, mm-hmm. trustworthy these studies are. But I've seen a couple where, or, or maybe it's just one, but I feel like it's been more where uh, researchers have taken people uh, and have studied them out camping, like in the woods, like no yeah, artificial light. <clears throat> yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, so they can, yeah. well, this one that I'm thinking of is particularly with camping so that they could just see the effect mm-hmm. of extended time of all they have is the sun going up yeah. and going down. And then how does this, and, and what they found was that regardless of owl or large, they all started to go to bed around the same time. Mm-hmm. And so I'm wondering if the owl and lark thing is really just a sensitivity to artificial light and that mm-hmm. the owls are, are less or, or yeah, maybe more sensitive to the artificial. And so are staying up later and the larks just are not. And so they're going to bed earlier. I, I, I don't know. What do you think about this? Yeah, I think it's totally possible. I I also want to point out that owl and lark is really a kind of a social term of what's your preference, right? Cognitively, Mm -hmm. what your preference is. Are you someone who likes to stay up and kind of push their boundaries also a little bit more? Mm -hmm. It could also be related to all of these things, Mm -hmm. separate from what your underlying circadian rhythm is. What I'm thinking, though, is that the owl is uh, stimulated more by the artificial light. So enjoys staying staying up and so it is it is it is just a more enjoyable thing whereas the lark like like <laughs> this one here is like oh the artificial light i feel i feel like it's brutal and i you're and a highly I, sensitive and I person at, at night and so by like 9 30 yeah. i'm just like done yeah but it's not just that it's it's that you cannot sleep in 
even when you were a teenager, you report you didn't sleep in. I remember having to be woken up for kindergarten, loving to be up late at night in kindergarten and having to be dragged out of bed like that early. The baby is just in my life to sleep in. What? And I, I've always been phenomenal at sleeping in, but you've never been able to sleep in. I mean, could that have something to do with it? Yeah. Yeah. I think there's a lot of questions about this, but (laughs) I think in general, our circadian rhythms can be trained really easily Mm -hmm. to some degree, or I should say in some people, they can be trained really easily. So if yours is trained to go to bed at night and sleep in while yours, Justin is trained to wake up in the morning and go to bed early. I mean, that's all a factor in also looking at our kids sleep. Because the consistency, I'll add, is the fourth thing that I would Mm. put in of timing. So consistency with timing is really critical to supporting circadian rhythms to then support quality duration, quality sleep, things like that. So that's, yeah, yeah, that that really makes sense to me with with our our son. He, I I think from the time he was a baby and small child, like couldn't sleep past 530 in the morning. And then it was like couldn't sleep past six and then 630 and like. You know, he got to the point where he could sleep in until seven, but we wouldn't want him to stay up very late at all, you know, even for special occasions, because he would get up and there was nothing that we could do about it. Um, whereas our, our daughter yeah. could sleep in like she could she could like make that wiggle, make that change. So it is really interesting how there is uh, we see the difference present with us and then with our kids as yeah. well, just naturally. Right. It right. seems. So the last <laughs> sleep science question before we get okay. into the practice, sure. uh, can you tell us a little bit about what happens to the brain? And we, we can we can specifically think about kids here when mm-hmm. they're not getting enough sleep over time. This is not just one night, although mm-hmm. there are studies showing, you know, uh, the impact of just one night of restricted sleep. But over time, if our kids aren't getting enough sleep or their sleep is disrupted, what are some of the things that are happening in the brain when, when that takes place? Yeah, it's a good question. So I will say there's a lot of research that needs to be done on this area and a lot of research that needs to be very objective. It's hard to study kids in sleep and kind of look long-term because we have to rely a lot on past reports, um, which aren't as reliable, unfortunately. Um, because you're, because you're not going to be able to do a randomized control trial and say, okay, we're going right. to restrict sleep for, for these kids. <laughs> yes, that would be pretty unethical to say, you guys will see what happens in a few years. We're going to yeah. hold back on the sleep. Yeah. Right? Um, yeah. But just naturalistic kind of observations of data suggest that, you know, next day for kids, kids are pretty resistant. They might show some more emotional reactivity. They might show some attention issues. Um, there's some research that shows down the line, kids who are not sleeping enough, especially in early kind of toddlerhood, have increased behavioral issues um, and increased academic difficulties. So they're scoring a little bit lower on academic tests um, and they're having increased kind of uh, executive function behavior issues. So those that are revolving around cognitive control, attention, inhibition, inhibition of behavior, um, that's down the line. Um, usually when those studies have happened, they're kind of looking three to five years down the line. So that's directly with kids. In general, with adults, we know that when we don't sleep enough, our brains are not optimized for the next day. We are much more emotionally reactive. We can even mm. react mm. more so to negative information and perceive it more threatening than maybe it typically would be to us. Um, we have poor attention. This is why it's very dangerous to drive if we haven't slept enough right? And you can think about adolescence as well. 
They're not oh sleeping God. enough. It's, oh my God. They are, yes. they are <laughs> learning how to drive a little bit more <laughs> dangerous, right? Um, and then, and also, you know, our next day, we're not able to acquire the typical knowledge that we would want to. Hmm. Yeah. So a lot of detrimental effects, which is why sleep is so important. Absolutely. It's, that's, I, I, I mean, it is, it is the foundation. Like we, we in the family thrive, we have these thrive pillars. So we talk about nutrition and we talk about mental and emotional health and social support and exercise, but it's like, none of it matters if you're not getting enough sleep. You got like, start with the sleep. Yeah. Well, none of it will kind of all come together, right? If you're not getting enough sleep, how can you stay healthy? That's the kind of key of it, right? Yeah, yeah. All right. So now let's get into sleep practices at the very beginning. So uh, what should parents know about optimal sleep for newborns? I know that I mean, there's so like, um, I mean, if you have an opinion on sleep training and these uh, other other things, then please share. But uh, are there some key things that you just wish every parent knew about mm-hmm. optimal sleep for newborns? Yes. The number one most important thing is it's all okay. You can't do anything. Just survive. That is the key <laughs> to newborns. It's just surviving. So newborns don't have circadian rhythms. No human is born with an intrinsic circadian rhythm. So oh. we don't know night is night and day is day. And it doesn't come about until about three to four months from what research studies have shown. And so it's just survival. And there's nothing wrong with whatever you got to do to get these kids to sleep. So we want it to be safe always. But you know, if you're awake, and you just want to hold a baby and have a contact nap while you're sleeping or baby wear, do it. There's nothing wrong with that. I wore my kids frequently when they were newborns, because they had great sleep while they were on me and kind of connected and close to mom. Um, mm. But it's just pure survival for those first few months until you you can start to get them more aware and trained and their circadian rhythm is starting to develop. There's things you can do to support them in being better sleepers, but it's survival in that beginning. Yeah. How how old are your kids now? Mm-hmm. I've got a six-month-old and a three-and-a-half-year-old. Oh, how cool. Mm-hmm. So you're, yeah. you're in the middle yeah, of the, right the, middle. the child sleep. For sure. And it's like just when you get them sleeping, it seems like then they're teething again and then, you oh, know, yeah. up again. And it's just, it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's a lot going through those toddler years. Yeah. Well, how do you feel about um, the concept of, of, of sleep training or, or, or trying to teach a child to, to, self, to self-soothe um, mm-hmm. to go to sleep? Yeah. So I'll start with saying that for every family, it's what works for you is the right thing mm-hmm. to do. And there's nothing wrong with that. So some families like sleep training and some families don't feel comfortable and that is okay. There's no wrong answer here. And I think the most important thing is supporting moms and supporting parents in general in being the best parents that they want to be. So that's, that's my, my motto with all things. I love that motto. Yes. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah. It's, there's no judgment. And I think there's a lot of shame around different practices. Like right now I'm seeing a lot of anti-sleep training um, information going around, which I'm finding really interesting. Um, But I also think a lot of it necessarily, or isn't necessarily based in, in the research. And so I think there's a Mm -hmm. lot of concerns about what's being presented um, on social media. I'll just add that. So from the research, there's no, no negative effects, long term, short term to kids being sleep drained. That doesn't mean you have to do it. That doesn't mean anyone has to do it. But there's mm-hmm. no negative effects of it. And there's many different methods to doing it. One being kind of what the extreme one everyone thinks of is like, you just shut the door and walk away, which nobody mm-hmm. does. Nobody mm-hmm. ever does that. And then there's very gradual ones that say, 
you know, I'll, I'll kind of do a little thing here and there. I don't want my kids to sleep. So there's spectrum. Everything works. Uh, a lot of people fall in the middle at some point within the first two years of life where they say, okay, I need to do sleep training because for my mental health, I need to have <laughs> yes. better sleep. I need to do something. No, that was us. <laughs> right? That was yeah. absolutely, absolutely us. There's a point where, you know, every, I think most parents reach where they're saying, I'm not getting enough sleep. I'm not able to be that present mindful parent I'd mm-hmm. like to be in the mm-hmm. moment. And so what do I do? How do I support my child? And how do I support myself? And I think it's all this important relationship. Yeah. Do you, no, I do think you remember that? Oh, of course I remember that. <laughs> I mean, what I think is, is really beautiful about what you're saying is like, I've had friends who um, are breastfeeding throughout the night and the baby is co-sleeping and doing great. And they're both getting more sleep, co-sleeping and, and, and moving forward that way. And then there are parents like us who I had to go back to work at three, three months. And I I was up at two in the morning and the, he would feed and not just go back to sleep. And we had like a physio ball, you know, like a, a bouncy ball. Oh, yeah. and I have to have him <laughs> on the ball and, right. and kind of like slowly bounce him down to sleep. And then it was mm-hmm. like, uh, was the temple of doom. Like, um, oh, just laying him. Back yeah, down. trying to try yeah. to like have like a warm blanket down or something to lay him down so that not to like tip off the booby trap, like, oh, and yeah. get him down and to be like, eh! <laughs> you know, like, and at some point I was like, I can't function any longer. This baby is capable of falling asleep on his own and we need to help facilitate that. It's going to be painful for me as the mom. There was like that, uh, I remember there's a TV show in the nineties that had a really big um, scene um, with this and the parents were waiting outside the door, you know, cause it's so painful for the parents, it is, yeah. but it worked for us. So I, mm-hmm. I love your motto because it's finding yeah. like what works for you. And um, mm-hmm. Max is like an awesome sleeper and kind of always was after that. Oh yeah. 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 I sleep out. train my kids as well. So <laughs> yeah. I mean, my six month old, I was like, it's done. I'm, I'm working. It's time for you to learn how to sleep. So but, you know, again, it's it's where you lie on this spectrum. There's no wrong answers. And then it's how quickly or not quickly you want to do it and, and the kind of support you want to give your kids. But, yeah, I, I so think it's all right. as well to some degree. It's all right. There's yeah, no wrong you answer. go follow your intuition, your path. It's not one way or the other. Um, it, we're having similar debates um, in other areas like with uh, breastfeeding you know, formula feeding, you know, and it's moving into the fed is best. And it, it's like that space, like, however it is that you can do it with whatever combination, whatever works for you. No judgment. Yes. I want to say like sleep is best or, or rested mm-hmm. is best or whatever that yeah, same version I is. Right. I completely agree. I think it's a lot of parallels. And I think in general, trying to create a supportive community for parents is the most important part of this puzzle piece. And and every family looks different. Every cultural aspect as well Mm -hmm. changes the dynamics. And it's really important that we are supporting early parenthood. A decade ago, Audra and I received news no parent ever expects to hear. Your four-year-old son has brain cancer. In that hospital room in Orange County, California, we had our fair share of tears and despair. But we also vowed that we would use this to help our family thrive no matter what. A decade later, after starting a nonprofit that has served thousands of childhood cancer families, we're on a mission to bring all of the amazing researchers, doctors, therapists, and other experts we've worked with to all families everywhere. 
That's why we created The Family Thrive, an online platform and community of top health and wellness experts and parents like us who are looking to thrive against the odds. Just fresh daily expert articles and topics that matter to parents like us, like how to cook a superfood meal in under 20 minutes, or the latest sleep science that can boost our kids' mental health, or simple things we can do to thrive as parents. We have top credentialed experts breaking it all down into bite-sized chunks of actionable wisdom. You know when they say it takes a village to raise a family? Well, this is our village, and it's filled with quick bite expert wellness information and conversations that are designed specifically for busy parents. And when you're ready to dive deeper, we also have group-based workshops written and led by PhD researchers, psychologists, and clinical dietitians. This village is all on your phone, at your fingertips, whenever you need it. Join for free today at thefamilythrive.com. So kids uh, move out of infancy, uh, toddler, young kids. What are the sleep practices that parents should start to think about to support the best sleep. Now, um, I, I'm thinking, you know, the, uh, the way that I grew up, my, my parents never gave this a single thought. It was just like, go to bed and just be done with it. But now that I've, I've learned enough s- about sleep science, like, oh, there, there are things that we can do to like really support optimal sleep. And I think about them not just in terms of the nighttime practices, but also daytime practices mm-hmm. as well to support a, a healthy circadian rhythm so that when, when we're awake, we're awake, and when we're asleep, we're asleep. So could you, I, I guess let's start with the daytime practices. What are some things during the day that parents can do to support the best sleep for their kids? Generally, the biggest thing is keeping a similar structure and schedule, both on weekdays and weekends. That's the, probably the biggest factor of everything. Um, having kids wake up similar times, we usually say within an hour, kind of if this is bedtime, an hour before, an hour after, that's kind of the, the goal. Helps support that circadian rhythm. And same with at night, getting, getting some wake um, light right at the very beginning. So going outside, if you're in beautiful California, having breakfast outside, you know, or walking around a little bit before school in the sun, that also helps because light, travels in through our eye, hits what we call our suprachiasmatic nucleus, which is our clock in our brain, and says, okay, it's time to wake up. Let's reset this and let's get going for the day. Um, and that's really important. Yeah. So are we talking like five minutes, 15 minutes, 30 minutes? Yeah. What, what's what's the best amount of time? I think 15 to 30 is probably pretty good. I mean, I think it depends on how strong the light is, right? If you're in Arizona mm-hmm. and Tucson, you don't need as much because that light is really bright. Yeah, right. Maybe being in Seattle where you're not getting as much light with the clouds, it's going to be a little bit longer. It's really about the amount. Uh, that's so helpful. I mm-hmm. I walk my daughter to school in the morning. Um, oh, perfect. And it is really, really helpful. And I think these practices translate to parents too, right? Oh, yeah. So yeah. <laughs> um, I... One of the things that I started doing a few years ago is I basically don't use sunglasses anymore. And I use them if like where I'm in somewhere with glare or whatever, like a hardcore harsh light environment. But just like during the day, I stopped using sunglasses. So just going mm. out. And then I was also aware of my contact lenses. Um, I had one once I had a UV filter. I didn't know. And then on my glasses. And so just taking all of that out and I found it made a radical for me made a radical difference in, in just allowing me access to that, that light. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That wake day. up light really can help, mm-hmm. especially in that first thing in the morning. Yeah. 
Having similarly timed meals is really good and helps our systems because it keeps our circadian rhythms really trained. You know, some days things don't work out, but in general, if things are at the same time, it really helps our systems continue. If kids are napping, having them nap at the same time, having a little cool down, calm down process right before that nap can help as well. Um, and then at night, also having that wind down time, we usually recommend about 45 minutes beforehand, turning down harsh lights, getting off TV, getting off phones, you know, any video game things, all of that stuff um, is really key to helping our bodies find this ability to kind of recenter itself and say, okay, I'm about to go to bed. It's time for me to wind down, do your bedtime routine, hop into bed. Hopefully that will help. All right. So this gets into the nighttime practices. Mm -hmm. So, um, so I've, I've, I'm, I'm aware of uh, research around the circadian rhythm in our, with our metabolism. And Mm so it, to make a long story short, it's better to eat more when the sun's up than mm-hmm. rather when the sun's down. Yeah. So what would be like an optimal time? Or uh, let me rephrase that. When should be a time when parents should, should say, okay, the kitchen's closed, like no more food? Well, I think that's a tough question to answer only because some kids have different caloric needs and intakes. And if you follow nutritionists and doctors, some doctors recommend their kids have a little snack before bed to kind of keep them going through the night. In adults, it's a little easier to say that you want to have a space between dinner and bedtime. But with kids, I mean, you essentially want to have that space as well. But if your kid isn't able to do it, it's not something you should be following. Okay, so uh, so then let's just turn to parents. When mm-hmm. should parents for themselves say, all right, I want to be done with what I'm eating so that I can get the best sleep? I think the goal is typically about three hours. I think some people say four, some people say two, I say around three. So if you're having dinner at like six, go to bed at nine, have a dinner at seven, you're ready to go to bed about 10. What about exercise? Should we try to reduce exercise in the evening, try to keep it all in the daytime? So we used to think that you needed to exercise right in the morning. And that's the optimal time. Some recent research has just come out saying, well, if you exercise at night, it doesn't affect your body and your sleep. Um, So I'll say the jury's still out in that. But again, keeping exercise at a similar time of day helps your circadian rhythm so that it knows, Mm. okay, now's my exercise time. Now's my eating time. Now's my time to go to sleep. So all of that consistency piece consistency is really key. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then when should we think about having the screens off in order to promote this winding down towards bedtime 45 minutes is probably the minimum minimum yeah minimum of mm-hmm. 45 minutes what about yeah, which is tough for kids and adults oh. yeah. and adults i mean <laughs> yeah. when you're I, I, reading twitter at night i, I love oh, yeah. twitter i love mm-hmm. twitter and so, i don't get it during the day so like my bedtime is my twitter time i will say as a clinician i say Unless it's a problem, it's not a problem. So if you don't have any (laughs) problem falling asleep and you're looking at Twitter right before you go to bed, it's not a problem. Mm. But if you're having a problem falling asleep or your kid's having a problem Mm -hmm. falling asleep and you're saying something's not working, let's look at the structure, let's look at the schedule, that's when you want to start tweaking things around. So we're not going to go in there and say, let's fix everything when nothing needs to be fixed. You're getting good sleep. But in general, we do know that these things can help sleep. Got it. Oh, I think that's great. That's super helpful. What about Mm -hmm. turning the lights down as the sun goes down? Mm -hmm. 
Is yeah, that I mean, a helpful right now, practice for winter people? winter happening, it's <laughs> going to be earlier and earlier. But yeah, all of these things are important. But having lights come down, having screens up. I mean, if you think about it, a screen is right here and we're looking right at it. Yeah. You're really getting a lot of light from that. So, oh, so yeah. the lights don't have, do the lights have to be off or can they just be turned down? Just like down. so that we're seeing just, just down. Just down. Yeah. Just down. They don't I have know. To be all I, up. I, I have <laughs> those, like a, those night a, modes are really good right now. Yeah. I have a visceral reaction to artificial light at night. Like I, I, I really, I like, I really don't. It's like a campfire out front because oh you can, God. yeah. It, and our neighbors are like, when we first moved into where we live now in Georgia, our neighbors were like, um, what is happening? You have no lights on at night. <laughs> yeah, it's like, oh, Justin goes around and turns them off if anybody turns them on. Uh, so what about blue light blocking glasses at night? This is this this has been a, a popular yeah. thing for adults who want to optimize, mm-hmm. you know, their sleep. Mm-hmm. What do you think about these? I think it's totally possible. If it works for you, it works. I mean, I think also just turning down, putting on night modes is another way to do it. So I don't think you need them, but they can help. So like any way that you can reduce the amount of artificial light that's coming Mm -hmm. into your eyes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, a lot of folks use blue light blocking glasses during the day if they're on a computer a lot. Mm -hmm. I don't know anything about that. Um, is that something that could, could be, you, you, it sounds like you still want to maybe get outside and get some sunlight if you're in that situation. Yeah. Yeah, Artificial light is not going to give you that same amount that Mm -hmm. being outside will. And so Mm -hmm. that's really what, what it comes down to is getting that sunlight. Do you know, so I, I, I don't, I don't know, um, really what a lux is but you know they they're they <laughs> they you know it's a way to measure how you know how much light is being mm-hmm. emitted so could you give us just or do you know the difference between um indoor lights like if you're in a classroom or an office yeah. what the lux is compared to if you walk outside and it's a relatively sunny day yeah you know off the top of my head i can't but i know it's like thousands different you yeah, know, it's, it's huge. Like very right? little versus huge mm-hmm. difference. Yeah. All right. All right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, so that's I. I often think about that because I. I remember. I. I I'm not in an office in, anymore, but I. Mm-hmm. When. When I was, I would. I would think that I like. I need to get out. Just. Just get that sunlight for yeah. even just a couple minutes. I mm-hmm. feel. I don't know if it was a placebo effect, but I. But I would feel much. I still do it now. Better. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Get a little sun. Sunlight breaks. Okay, so now uh, kids are in bed, mm-hmm. um, sleeping. How can we arrange their environment to support optimal sleep? What are some of the things that we should be thinking about with their rooms? So in general, sleep hygiene is a really common term. It's not the best term probably because it kind of sounds funny, but um, having a cooler room, having it darker as much as kids feel comfortable with. Certain kids can't sleep fully in the dark, and that's okay for that kind of season of life. Um, having them be in a comfortable bed, so one that they feel safe and content, warm enough, those kinds of things. Having white noise can help a lot, um, or just in general, quiet. Mm-hmm. So white noise, what is the consensus on white noise? White noise can help block out kind of these environmental sounds. And Mm -hmm. I think that's where it really comes into play. So if you're in a noisy area, or for example, you've got other noisy kids in the house, noisy pets, it can help kind of maintain a specific level. Quiet or white noise, dark, and then cool. I have seen 
recommendations that uh, like the optimal temperature should be in the high 60s. Is that right? You know, that's what some people say. I'll say I don't sleep in that cold yeah. room. So <laughs> right. I think it's also to some degree a personal and preference choice, mm-hmm. right? All right. Yeah. All right. I mean, my infant won't sleep that that in that cold of a room. So yeah, I'm super glad to hear about white noise because we definitely oh, use it. You know, one thing I hear from parents is what. I, I want to make sure that I'm not inserting something in my child's sleep routine that will cause like some sort of dependency, you know, not just like chemical dependency, but like some sort of like, does that mean they can't sleep without it? You know, and that's mm-hmm. a challenge, right? So yeah. um, along similar lines, uh, melatonin use of uh, supplemental melatonin. Um, what, what, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's something to discuss with pediatricians when you want to use it with kids. There's Mm -hmm. not really a lot of research on use with children and not long-term research. And so in general, we know intrinsically children should be having the right amount. Um, And melatonin in itself is actually a a timing hormone. So it says, okay, now your body should go to sleep. It doesn't Mm -hmm. actually say fall asleep. It just says, this is the time. Like, here I am, I'm high. Like, with your circadian rhythm, it's time to start coming down and going to sleep. I know a lot of parents use it. I know, especially um, at times it's recommended in children with certain disorders like autism mm-hmm. to help keep them on a schedule because mm-hmm. if it's a timing mechanism, if you take it at the same time, you can help your train your circadian rhythm or your children's circadian rhythm. Oh, interesting. You could potentially help retrain if like you have jet lag or exactly. they're away at camp for a week and things mm-hmm. get changed or something like that. Yeah. 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 But it's definitely something to discuss with a pediatrician before mm-hmm. giving it. Um, in general, I think for most children, they shouldn't need it, especially long term. But here or there, you know, it happens. I want to talk real briefly about parents. Um, what about naps for adults? I just, I just have to ask, ask this. <laughs> what? There's nothing wrong with them. What do you think <laughs> okay, about naps right, for right. adults? <laughs> yeah, I think there's nothing wrong with them. So naps are fantastic for you. And at different amounts, they help with different things. So short ones can kind of help regenerate you. You're able to attend to better. You know, that's that fatigue countermeasure. Mm-hmm. Um, a little bit longer, like 20 minutes up to 90 minutes, you can actually start to get memory benefits, have a kind of emotional reactivity reset as well. Mm-hmm. If you get a full cycle of sleep, that includes REM. So depending on the length of nap can function can serve different functions. I'm a big proponent of if you need the sleep, get the sleep. Awesome. Awesome. I love that. You got to love hearing that he gets up at like 334 in the morning and well so yeah I I, I really love like a 20 minute nap yeah. I feel yeah. like it is it like 20 minutes it's mm-hmm. it's just the perfect, perfect it's a sort of nap where if you if you lay down on the couch leave your feet on the floor and just tilt yourself over <laughs> right don't get too comfortable no Absolutely. no I, I, yeah. if you get too comfortable for me I could end up in one of those three hour <laughs> ones where you wake up thinking it's like the next day and yeah, and yeah. you have that groggy sleep oh, inertia worse. afterwards, which doesn't feel good. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, so yeah. it's all for depending on who you are, what you mm-hmm. need, what your needs are. So yeah. to start to wrap this up, I, I do have a curiosity around motherhood for you. How has becoming a mother changed how you think about sleep or has it had no effect? I mean, I, I like it even more than I used to, but I've always <laughs> liked it. <laughs> it's now um, like the most important thing in your life. Yes. yes. Yeah, absolutely. So I, um, I did my master's where I sleep deprived over a hundred undergrads. Yeah. So I've been sleep deprived 
but you know, you know how they always say, like, they make the jokes, like, teachers, kids, they can't always read right away, or psychologists, like, they mm-hmm. always need some extra therapy, or sleep researchers, they never sleep. It's true. So, because all our research is around watching other people oh, sleep. Oh, you got to be in the so, lab all, all night, right? We're in the lab oh. all night. So, I've been sleep deprived for probably the better part of the last 15 years. But that oh being God. said, motherhood takes it to a new level. Oh, um, God. Because oh. you don't ever get those opportunities to go back and sleep in those chunks, right? So when I was sleep depriving people the next day, I could sleep for five, six hours to kind of work it out, right? Um, mm-hmm. So I've loved it even more than I did before. But um, I use my clinical skills to help support my family sleep, help support our kids. So mm, awesome. I'm very That's thankful awesome. for that privilege and that knowledge. Yeah, yeah, that um, it it strikes me as being really powerful that you could come into motherhood, really understanding the power of sleep, mm-hmm. um, and being able to probably ask for more help around you, whatever your needs are to make sure that those mm-hmm. are met, um, instead of getting into the normal mom self sacrificing mode. Um, mm-hmm. I'm I'm assuming that that research uh, is helpful and something that could help any anyone going into motherhood um, Mm -hmm. to to know how powerful sleep is and to ask for the help to get the sleep. Yeah. And to ask, and just also to be aware of, um, I think there's just so much shame and guilt around being that best mom and knowing that no, nothing is right. There's, there's no wrong answers. Everyone is doing the best they can and everyone's child is going to turn out wonderfully. And that's, the most we can hope for, right? And so whether or not you sleep train or whether or not you do this or do that or breastfeed or formula feed, every kid's going to turn out great in the end. And so having that kind of awareness um, and being able to take a step back in motherhood has helped me a lot. Yeah. And just supporting, supporting folks in, in whatever Mm -hmm. their, whatever their space is, whatever their needs are, whatever their best is, right. It's going to be different Mm -hmm. for everyone and supporting them in, in that, in their own journey, whatever that looks like. Mm-hmm, absolutely. So Kate, what is particularly exciting for you personally in your growth as a mother and just as a human being? What are you working on? Because I and just to give a little bit of context for, <laughs> okay, for this, this is the, the family it, it, it is the so uh, the family thrive, you know, we're we're an we're an app and we're a platform for parents who want to dig deeper and and you know work on themselves work on uh, helping them themselves thrive and their families thrive. So I well, this I've question that you normally ask, things. you normally ask like, what's at your edge? Like uh, I'll, I'll say, like, what is at your edge? Yeah, like like what is just new and exciting for you, or the that, next thing coming for you, or a thing that you're really interested in right now? You know. So I think for me and looking ahead, we're looking towards these next steps in my girls. Um, and I think for me, being able to take all of the knowledge that I've gained and really look at how it unfolds every moment and also trying to be very present and mindful parent through it all has been mm. what I've been focusing on myself. Mm. So I think a lot of parents were constantly caught up in the day-to-day activities. The days feel so long, but then the years feel so short. And trying to really be present and mindful of these these moments that I'm having and moments of watching my girls together, watching our family. That's where I am. Oh. It's beautiful. Do you have any um, any strategies you've you've used in that? Like as a mom, I really resonate with working on presence. And for me, sometimes it's just noticing. It's like taking taking notice of this beautiful moment 
sometimes trying to write it down or, or even photograph it or store it away somewhere or something? Do you have a strategy that's helped you with that presence? Yeah, I, I try to stop myself when I realizing when I'm realizing I'm not in the moment when, you know, Mm. I'm on my phone, I'm working or, you know, different things are coming to mind. And I catch myself, I try and say, okay, this is when I'm trying to be here fully as a mom, I'm going to be present in this mom moment, and I'm just going to engage. And that's the strategy that I've personally been taking is to really try to have that kind of mindset of catching myself and engaging in the moment. When I'm at work, I'm full work. And then mm-hmm. when I'm a mom, I'm trying to be full mom. Beautiful. I love that. So it's really noticing, paying mm-hmm. attention. It's a it's it's a mindful practice of like, oh, I mm-hmm. kind of just got caught up in something, <laughs> you know, and yeah, and exactly. I want to be here. Yeah. Yeah. Re-centering. And it's not it's not perfect. I'm not perfect. No one is. So I also want to say that with a grain of salt in the sense of sometimes I don't catch myself and that's also okay. I think that's giving right. yourself a lot of grace is what's needed as a parent. I couldn't agree with you more. And I love the, I love that you shared that, uh, it's, it's not about perfection and it, it sounds like that's what I, what I like hearing about this as a practice for you. Cause when I hear this practice, it's sort of a daily, you know, mindful practice, something that doesn't mean you're going to be this way. I'm not going to be present 24 seven. Right. And so that's why I need this practice Mm -hmm. to help with that kind of recentering, you know, in the moment when I'm with my family. But also mm-hmm. the beautiful thing is that each new moment provides that opportunity to right. be totally present. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's that's awesome. So we have three final questions that we ask every podcast guest. And so the first one is, Kate, if you could put a post-it note on every parent's fridge tomorrow morning, what would that post-it note say? You're doing great. Keep going. You're doing great. Yes. Keep that's going. That's all you need. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. One foot in front of the other. Yeah. And... Is there a recent quote that has changed the way you think or feel? Probably not. I'll be honest. I mean, <laughs> I think in general, every time I see be kind stickers, I yeah. they resonate with me. I think kindness towards others and towards our community and society is really something that we constantly need. So it's a good recheck for everyone. Be kind. And then the final question, because it is, uh, you know, the parenting grind is real, as you know, Mm -hmm. So we, uh, as, as you said, it's easy to get, you know, caught, caught up in the to do's and the scheduling, but it's nice to take a step back and think about like, what's so wonderful about kids. And so Kate, what do you love most about kids? Oh, they're the best. I I mean, (laughs) how can you just not love children? I think they're interesting the way they view the world just watching how they experience new things through the world. Um, my three-year-old, for example, calls elevators es- excavators. <laughs> oh, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't ever want to correct it because it's just no, so yes, yes. no. But, you know, we took her to a children's museum this weekend and um, they have one of the, I, I don't know, I've never seen it before, but they're air chutes. And so if you put, um, what were they? They were like these fluffy ball things. With oh, yeah. Ribbon. yeah. And you throw it in one and then it will shoot all around and going through and then come out and just watching her try and figure it out and understand was the highlight of my week. I mean, the joy she had in this moment of just watching this ball travel through these tubes and where would it come out? I think that that kind of joy and that momentary experience and appreciating that and really engaging with that is one of my favorite things about being a mom and, and being someone who works with kids. There's, there's no bad kids in this world. So. Mm. Oh, it's beautiful. Yeah. Put a pin in that. There's no bad kids in this world. Yeah, and then, and then to yeah. be able to experience that pure, authentic mm-hmm. state of being 
yeah. that they inhabit, right? Like the wonder is a is a state of being and it mm-hmm. is not self-conscious. It is not like, yeah. you know, they're not like in, in the mode of social anxiety and what's going right. on and performative or anything like that, right? It's just like mm-hmm. wheels turning, making sense of the world. It's beautiful. Yeah, absolutely. Oh. Kate, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah. This was such a pleasure. This yeah. was so enlightening. We got so much information uh, I'm really excited for parents to hear this. And thank you for your research and your commitment. Um, you have exciting things ahead. You know, I love how you're taking the research that you're doing now and you're going to translate it to adolescents. Um, I hope that we can we can use this kind of research to uh, help kids start school later. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm running a study right now. If anyone and has kids between 9 and 13 and they want to do a Minecraft sleep and memory study. So... <gasps> Yeah, it's all remote. It's all remote? We have one. We will take them. Yeah, anyone who'd like to. 9 and 13, Maisie is. Awesome. And she plays Roblox, but close close enough. Yeah. Let me talk about that. And how how long will you be recruiting for for, for this? Um, Hopefully the next few years. So it's going to be a big study. um, But anyone will be interested. Yeah, but we're recruiting right now. Awesome. So when this podcast airs, I think late our October. um, All right. So we'll, we'll we'll put, so we'll uh, follow up with you. We'll get the information Mm -hmm. for this and we'll put it in the show notes. Awesome. I appreciate it a lot. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Kate, thank you so so much. Thank you for having me. It was wonderful. (laughs) Bye. Hey, thanks for listening to the family thrive podcast. If you like what you heard, please subscribe tell two friends and head on over to apple podcasts or anywhere you listen to podcasts and give us a review we're so grateful you've chosen to join us on this family thrive journey